This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Lisa Traeger. And I'm Kara Clank. And you know what we do here, guys. We just talk about an SVU episode. We talk about the true crime that it was based on. And then we interview a fabulous guest. And... Before that, we just kind of check in for a minute. So, Lisa, what's going on? We banter, baby. (laughs) So, at this point, we're a little bit of a time machine right now. Like, we're recording a few days before we normally do. But at this point, Lisa will be returned as a resident of Los Angeles. We're so excited to welcome you back. Because I feel like you guys obviously want to talk about Stabler's return and the crossover event and everything, but I will be on a plane. I will be moving. Well, we're talking, it's like, it's fucked up. The time, I don't know how to speak. I I feel like I'm going to do it, but I did just do it. Um, You're seeing behind the curtain. We had to do this sooner. And then... (laughs) I don't know. I'm go. I'm definitely excited that not every story from now on will not be like, well, my mom said, well, me and my dad did this. So, <laughs> or like drama with the cat drama yeah. with the dog. <laughs> <laughs> but my mom's like, we're going to miss you. I was like, yeah, you're just going to miss someone screaming at you for no reason. Sure. <laughs> um, no, but I'm going to miss them so much, uh, but I'm excited to move, whatever, yada, yada. It'll be stressful. For sure. I think I'm going to have to bring a printer on with me as a carry on. I don't understand that. Didn't I pack a printer for you here? Yeah, but my parents bought me. I can't. I, again, I'm like 14, but I got a printer for printer. Hanukkah. Ship it. Ship we're, it. Sca- we're scared it's going to break because my dad, because we're doing the Greyhound oh. shipping. My dad's like, well, can you write fragile? I'm like, Greyhound will throw it and piss on it. Yeah. Okay. There's no way it's going to be taken care of nicely. So now he's yeah. scared the printer's going to be destroyed. So he's finding styrofoam in the basement. I mean, this is going to be a fun uh, a few days of um my whole life and outfits. My mom used to pick a fight with me anytime I was going away. Like if I was going away to college or I was going away for camp for the summer or like even for like a long trip, we would always get into a fight right before. Does your parent, do your mom, does your mom do that? Well, you know why it's because she loves you, but can't express it. So yeah. She just turns yeah, on yeah. you instead. We would always just get into a fight like right before a big trip. No, the amount that parents love their children is truly sickening. Get a life guys. Uh, get a hobby. <laughs> 
parents are so desperate Um, i mean yeah i literally my toddler pooped in her bathing suit bottom yesterday and i cleaned it up with not even a wine you know it's like we love them so much well so obviously the news of the world is lil nas x twerking on the devil i love it and at this point i hope people are still talking about it i know it'll be next week but it's the it's my favorite thing i haven't even watched the video yet lisa and i'm so on lil nas x's side it's crazy like oh no i love him but it reminded me because Everyone's like, the children, the children. And our friend Solomon Giorgio had an amazing tweet. He goes, we don't care about your ugly ass children. Shut up. We don't care. No, And my friend wrote and goes, when did it become Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion and Lil Nas X's job to raise your kid? Like, what are you talking about? Like, also, I- priests rape children. So go away with your religious <laughs> nonsense. Is this too much for an intro? I think so. Maybe. <laughs> but I also agree, like, with your tweet that you had where you were like, I just adult people believing in the devil is just so like also on real housewives this week. I know it's a franchise you don't watch, but there was a franchise on Dallas. One of the, they did like a shaman thing. They had like a shaman night. And one of the women was like, that kind of made me um, upset because you're not supposed to turn to anyone except for Jesus. And that lets the devil in when you do things like that, that lets the devil. I'm like, I, I just hadn't heard like an adult person reference the devil as an imminent threat in like, a long time. Like, I just didn't think that was a thing. No, it's pretty embarrassing. I keep laughing at myself just being like, if I was someone that was like the devil, I don't know. I just, I don't <laughs> yeah. understand it at all. And then people are like, and he's promoting Satanism with his devil shoes. And it's like, and then someone posted this YouTuber I follow is like, Nike is supporting Satan. How dare they? And Miley Cyrus is wearing the Satan shoes. And you guys are, you're still so ignorant to the fact that Hollywood's run by Satan. I'm like, none of us take it serious. Don't yeah, you get it? it's we're not just too real. cool. <laughs> we're fucking cool. I asked our sneakerhead friend if he got the Satan shoes, but he said it was sold out in a minute. So oh, shit. It was old. They only released six, six, six of them, <laughs> which is amazing. <laughs> and there's real blood. I couldn't even get Ivy Park pants. I mean, I can't imagine the Satan shoe. Shit. <laughs> no, I want to tell Farbag too. I just I'm good at concert tickets. I've definitely spent a lot of my time on Ticketmaster apps, calling on the website. I got a Dell ticket. It took me an hour and a half, but I did it. Like I am wow. good at concert tickets. I got Gaga tickets, um, old fashioned Ticketmaster way. But the drops on fashion, I I haven't honed in on that skill yet. But I love him. The whole thing is like. Religious people said gay people are going to hell. He's like, fine, I'll go to fucking hell and I'm going to fuck the devil. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's so cute. And then I didn't realize this, but I guess uh, Old Country Road had very dirty lyrics because he's like, I talked about leaning in on a bladder, you dumb bitches. It's not my fault you showed it to your children. (laughs) But also children don't get it. Like I watched The Simpsons as a kid and I didn't get most of the jokes till I was older. These are the same people that are like letting their kids like twerk to fully dirty songs on TikTok. And they're like, isn't that cute? Or like half the songs that kids dance to in dance competitions are like filthy songs about sex. I mean, it's just like... Kids don't get it or you have to explain things to your kids. Like, it's just not I don't agree in, with satanic panic, with fucking any of the the shit that goes on with like the, the old tipper gore shit from the 90s of like putting ratings on music and like music is going to corrupt you. Like who's one person that now as an adult is like, fuck, man, if I never got into Led Zeppelin, I think my life would have gone <laughs> real different. Like that's just no one's saying that shit. Like it's just crazy. Also, the name Tipper is out of control. I don't (laughs) understand that. 
But I think we're skipping over the most important point, which is like all my queer ass friends are like, if I had this as a teen, it would have changed my life. Yes. It's fully homophobic. I think the panic, too, because people were talking about how other rap groups have talked about the devil before and Satan and other a ton of other people have done stuff like that. And no one cares. But because it's like this black gay man, that's a problem. You know, it's just never happened. I can't think of a gay pop man star in heels twerking like in my life. So twerking on the lap of the devil. I think he was counting on that, that you'd never (laughs) seen that before. (laughs) I think he was counting on that. Of TikTok. I don't know if you saw this, but I guess a popular TikToker was on Jimmy Fallon doing yes, all the famous TikTok dances. And there was a tweet and it's like, I didn't realize this because the TikTok dances look so stupid, but they're originated by black young people that are amazing. Who are so good. And then like white girls do the slowed down, like, like completely robotic version of it. And that's like the stuff that get goes like viral. But I didn't know I'm an idiot. And then someone tweeted, this is the legit movie. Bring it on. Yeah. Like this is bring it on. <laughs> and I was watching all the black people do the dances and I was like, Oh, this is fucking cool. Like how are these basic bees on television? I mean, I don't want to be mad at teenagers, but yeah. It's so fucked up. I don't know. But all thrilling. Um, TikTok, you, I've become very into YouTube. I know, Lisa, I'm worried about you. You're buying merch. You're buying coffee from Not YouTubers. <laughs> like, I don't know what's going on. I am going to buy Emma Chamberlain coffee, um, but I'm obsessed with Emma Chamberlain. But now it's gotten I watch Inked. It's like a tattoo magazine. I've watched hours. It's just tattoo artists making fun jokes. And I've and then I've been watching like Harper's Bazaar, what I eat in a day. And it's celebrities talking about what they eat. And then I started watching nutritionists watch what the celebrities eat in a day and then judge them. <laughs> and I, I don't even watch Netflix, nothing. I'm just like SVU and YouTube all day, every day. It's never enough content. I'm just like waiting for Trixie to put out a new makeup tutorial. I just like... <laughs> Oh, God. I Yeah. But Emma Chamberlain is my new God. Wow. And she's 20. She's 19. She's 19. <laughs> okay. Just wanted to clarify for everybody. <laughs> she's 19. But like she was like, look, I got Birkenstocks. And I was like, oh, my God, I have Birkenstocks in my storage. I can't wait to wear my Birkenstocks again. I don't know. I'm susceptible to marketing. Maybe maybe if I was a kid, I would be coming to Satan. Honestly, like, <laughs> Yeah. I am blinded by marketing. I'm a merch whore. I don't know. I'm basic. Like, I think I just like things because people are selling them to me. I do want to say that before I leave, uh, my family did find a new game. Oh, I'm bringing backgammon to LA. My dad gifted me a little suitcase You have to teach me how to play. I don't know how to play backgammon. I think you're going to love it. We're going to have fun. But then we started playing Rummy Cube, which, yeah, I don't know who um, plays Rummy Cube. And then we played with my sister in the garage in masks and she's good. And we learned a lot from her. She's been playing for a while. But um, I got a message from someone saying that lots of people are regressing to their teenage self since we're all moving in back with our parents. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not just me screaming at my mother that everyone is just regressing to their twin bed life, bad behaviors, bad communication. And that's okay. We're all going to get out of it at some point. We're all going to graduate back into queen beds and full beds and everything's (laughs) going to be fine. Are you going to put my bed together, BT dubs? I mean, if you're asking me if it's the first time I've put a bed frame together seven and a half months pregnant, the answer is absolutely not. I've done it before and I will do it again. (laughs) That's like I'm scared of, but I think I have, I think like I'll be over there with my $20 Ikea drill. 
Ooh, it is. It's going to be an Ikea bed. Yeah. All right. This is this turned into a text message at the end. Uh, we really <laughs> came in strong with opinions and we're ending this with just into logistics. a text message at the end. I love it. <laughs> OK, let's get into our episode. Um, we have a really great one today. So let's jump right in. So this is Institutional Fail. It's season 17. And then according to Hulu and lots of sources, it's episode three. And then if you go somewhere else on the internet, it's episode four. I think it's episode four. I think Hulu puts together episodes sometimes. Like they'll put together like episodes that are like to be continued episodes when really they're their own episodes. So I think it's actually episode four. That's according to this SVU fandom. And I feel like that should be our kind of... (laughs) Bible because people in the UK are listening. They don't have Hulu. You know, I don't know for sure. And we have personally found multiple mistakes in IMDb. So yeah, if that makes us better than everyone, but okay, we're going to get into this episode. It's pretty heartbreaking. One of the uh, saddest. I don't even know how to pick which one's sad and they're all sad, but whatever hurts your heart, you know? So it starts with a super little cute boy. Oh my um, God, he's so cute. He's so cute. They really like needed to not cast a boy that was this cute. It was too heartbreaking. He was so cute. And he's um on the chair in his kitchen and he's looking for food to eat and there's just nothing. There's no food. And so he unlocks the front door and starts walking down the hallway of this building. It's a giant apartment building. People are selling drugs outside. It's bustling. It's nighttime. And this little angel is just walking, trying to find food. And um, he goes to a bodega and... Um, I'm, this made me miss bodegas. I know that's not the point of this. We should be sad for this hungry child, but I was like, oh, what I would give to be in New York and have a bagel Uh. and cheese right now, um, and put Cheetos inside of it. Okay. So (laughs) he goes and he has some coins, which I was shocked by, but he he like had money. Yeah. But he, um, he buys like snowballs, the pink snowballs, it looks like, which is a perfect kid snack. It's like, yeah, I'll take the pink. Uh, I was about to say pink fuzzy ball, but that sounds disgusting. Um, <laughs> not delicious. And the bodega guy obviously is like, whoa, bro, where's where's your mom? And cut to William Dodds. And I think I might be calling him Gallagher throughout this episode. So if you hear Gallagher, I'm talking about William Dodd's eyebrow. Yes, man. who we have previously referred to as the biggest eyebrow guy in Hollywood, <laughs> which I think he is. But then some people did point out to us, Eugene and Dan Levy are also heavy into the eyebrow game. We respect that. Like, obviously, we recognize them as eyebrow canon. Go on. <laughs> OK, so. William is walking out with our queen, Mariska, and she's wearing a black dress. And you know, if she's at a function and she's in a gown, shit's about to go down. Okay. They like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're never just going to show Olivia like going home and like tucking into bed after a nice night out. That's never going to happen. No, she's going to a crime scene in a gown. And that is, that's exactly what happens. Um, so I see already at the bodega. And we have a former guest, William Scott Winters. Uh, Officer Doom is there. Yes. Um, so that was really thrilling to see. And he's, of course, like, ah, missing kid. I don't need this. Get the sex police over here. <laughs> so Ice T's at the bodega and Benson shows up and we're at the credits. We're like, we need to find what's up with this child and what's going to happen. So um, after the credits, we are with Benson and the kid and she's doing her kid voice like, oh, what's, you know, playing games to get information. Yeah, Um, I don't want to. I was about to do an impression, but then I remembered not very good at those. So (laughs) she's playing psychology games with the kid. We do find out his name is Bruno. I love that name. 
Um, the doctor, Dr. Darby Wilder, who's one of the most beautiful women in the world, she informs Benson this is a neglected kid. He has cavities. He's dirty. He's not being taken care of. And the doctor's like, I need to talk to these parents. And Benson's like, get in line, bitch. We all need yeah. to talk to the parents. <laughs> um, clearly, we don't know where the parents are. So Rollins is at the apartment. She's talking to neighbors. Um, she's trying to figure everything out. Carisi is there. Ice tea. The whole gang is there. They're talking to everyone outside of the projects, trying to like figure stuff out. We get the name of the mother. Her name is Manuela. And the last name is Dominican. So we have some clues and Rollins is super pregnant here. She is very, very pregnant and she's just like desperate to be on the scene. And it's like, just sit and do paperwork. What is wrong with you? I don't understand this work ethic. (laughs) I will never understand this work ethic. Like you are so pregnant. Take, I mean, you're actually the day before you gave birth, we went out to brunch. You were doing errands. So, right. But I wasn't at a crime scene. (laughs) No, I wasn't like, you got to let me tail this suspect. Like, I mean, she really is like a little bit of a overachiever. Yeah. And so Benson's like, sit your ass down and call the food stamps people and figure something out. You're not you're not coming with us. Um, Benson and Carisi go to social services and we see one of the biggest stars of our lifetime. Whoopi Goldberg. Huge. Huge influence on me. Huge person I've been obsessed with since childhood. Love, love, love. Whoopi what Goldberg. was your movie? Um, growing up, my movie, I mean, probably Sister Act. Yeah, same. But like, I loved her in so many things. I just thought she was great. Well, the thing is, too, my uncle was a really small part in this movie with her in Jumpin' Jack Flash. So I just like would watch that movie, even though it was like it was like a little too scary for me to watch. But I'd be like, Whoopi Goldberg. And like, I just like loved her always. I've met her a couple of times. You too, have? And yeah. I've met her a couple of times. I think I've met her three times. And every time I always, I mean, I obviously am like, remember me? Like I have to kind of tell her. I mean, I met her um, working on a couple of projects in New York and then she was on Drag Race. And oh, yeah, I don't know if people know this. This is an interesting fact about Whoopi Goldberg. And maybe it's made up, but this is what I heard. She, when she was a young kid, she witnessed a plane fall out of the sky. She basically saw a plane crash. So she does not fly. So when she did Drag Race, she literally took a bus, like, I mean, a tour bus, obviously, probably a beautiful, lovely bus, not like a Greyhound. And she took, she buses out with all of her people to, like, go do projects on the West Coast and then comes back. Like, she does not fly. I want to know where she vacations, though. I know. That's really... Maybe Miami, like, like yeah, Florida. Yeah, I was gonna say. Or um, I forgot about Drag Race, and she means so much to everyone because every drag queen was in tears, wanting to hug her. She had to hug everybody. Yeah, is that what yeah. happened? She was hugging everybody. <laughs> um, and then this is really embarrassing, but I'm obsessed with the movie Rat Race. Oh, That's okay. My favorite. Will be <laughs> oh, our producer is making a sa- making a face to us. Like we watch oh it God. every Christmas. Oh. <laughs> no, my dad is obsessed with Amy Smart. I love Breck and Meyer. It is the funniest movie. John Lovitz is incredible. Also, just have to say the Whoopi Goldberg thing is true. Um, is there a part of Rat Race where they go, "It is a race, and I am for the win"? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is Mr. Bean. Okay, my friend and I used to always say that, but I never seen the movie. <laughs> I thought Hannah was giving us a motion like wrap it up, bitches. We have an episode to cover, <laughs> but instead more rat race material, which is shocking and exciting. <laughs> this is how we know we have the right producer for our show. I also can't believe it's a Christmas holiday movie. There's and there's great uh, Nazi jokes, which is it's great. <laughs> <laughs> OK, now I'm telling you to wrap it up. Yeah, Let's okay, go. Okay. <laughs> 
But seeing Whoopi Goldberg in SVU is, it's amazing. You know, SVU makes stars. It's a lot of people before they're famous, a lot of people during their years of famous. But like to have Whoopi is, it's exciting. I think every season they try to get a few jewel names. Like they try to get a few big names to kind of like be the jewel in the crown of the season. And Whoopi is for sure that for what this season. Yeah, so she's working at child services. And we also meet Keith who is the caseworker. And when asked about Bruno, he's like, ah, what? I don't know. So that's not a good sign. Okay. We all know child protective services, they're overworked, too many caseloads, not enough funding. This is a tale as old as time. And Keith is played by John Magaro, who I'm obsessed with. And he was in Orange is the New Black as one of the husbands. And he's just a really good actor. And he's in Pen15. Oh, Yeah. This yeah. is star-studded. Um, so we get a <laughs> we get a last name, Bruno Azuno. And Keith says, he's like, yeah, I was there a couple weeks ago. The kids looked fine. And they're like, kids, excuse me? So yeah. they have to go to the building immediately because where? what is this other child? And uh, the elevator is broken. They have to walk up the stairs of this giant building. It's super hot. But Benson's in a jacket. It's very confusing. Very August Osage County vibes where it's like... <laughs> Take your coat off if it's so hot. <laughs> Julia Roberts, just take your coat off. Um, <laughs> so there's a half sister um, named Keisha Houston, and she's eight years old. When they get to the door, Benson says it's unlocked. That's not a good sign. The TV's playing. Um, the furnace. It's just we know something bad's about to happen. All the foreshadowing leads to something you can't even imagine. They unfortunately find Keisha laying in a dog cage, passed out. And Keith goes, oh, my God. And it's like, yeah, bitch, why weren't you doing your job? There is a pulse, but it's super faint. She's so tiny for being eight years old. And Carisi is so sensitive. He looks like he's about to cry. He can't handle this. And so they go to the hospital. There's still no sign of the mother. And the baby is starvation, dehydration, infections. And the doctor doesn't know if she's going to make it. Um, Ice-T, the investigator of the streets that he is, he does find the mother. And she has a cardboard sign. And she is super sweaty, hot, strung out. I would love to talk to the makeup department about how they got her so sweaty and sticky. (laughs) And her hair was mad. It was just like very good um, costuming work. And it's Maria Ruiz from Orange is the New Black. So lots of crossover. Carisi is talking to Keith, the child services person. And we find out what we already know. He's working too much. His co-workers on maternity leave, not a Rollins person, a Lisa Traeger person. Um, (laughs) She's off. She's taking a break. We're now in uh, interrogation. Ice-T and Rollins are talking to Manuela, who's the mother. And she's like, listen, it's Keisha's fault. If she behaved, she wouldn't be starved and in a cage. So that's it. You don't blame the vi- what's going on here. And she says that when she was a kid, she got beat up with electrical wires and cords until she bled. So she's like, do you want me to do that? So this is a nice statement about generational trauma and how everyone needs to be in therapy. But, you know. Yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's hard. Okay. Um, Benson, during the interrogation, she knocks on the window and uh, the detectives go and meet her in the little spy room and Keisha has died. So now this mother is going down for murder, but she's so high. She doesn't even understand what's going on. Benson and Rollins now are with Barbara and Barbara's like, so what's going on with child services? Whose fault is it? What's going on? The news is pissed. Like there's just... A lot of emotions, and they're trying to figure shit out. 
So Rollins and Benson are talking to Barba and they're like, we need to fucking take down child services. They're not doing their job. If they did their job, they would see Keisha was in a fucking cage and starving. No one has visited these children in forever. And Barba, who everyone is horny for, is like, get over your emotions in this maternal outrage. I need some evidence. Relax, ladies. So this yeah, is a spender it's motherfucker. It's a very big relax, ladies. Or, I mean, yeah, he's he's evidence-based. I get that. But he's not being very empathetic. No. And also, you know, just emotions are valid and the patriarchy has told us they're not valid and we shouldn't listen to them. But they are very real. And if our body has emotions, it's because we want to shut up. OK, um, so we're back with Whoopi. Yay. At Child Services. And Keith is there and they're figuring stuff out. And the deputy commissioner walks into the meeting and he looks like a child pretending to be a grown man. That's his face. It's like, why is this child face on this grown man body? That's the vibe <laughs> I get from the deputy commissioner. <laughs> um, and they and he says, listen, you need a subpoena. What are you what are you fucking doing here? Get out of here. So back at the precinct, they're looking at the notes and they're looking at all the reports and what they figure out, the detectives, is there's all this conflict within the notes and there's all these reports that are backdated and basically they're fudging the paperwork and they need to figure out what and why all this. What is this? Yeah, like mean? months and months of reports have been submitted the day that this girl has pa- this little girl has passed away. So that's suspicious, right? Yeah. Um. So. Barbara raises his eyebrows in a very sassy manner. And so (laughs) he, you know, he's tipped off by this fucked up paperwork. And so he's going to go meet Dodds and figure stuff out. And Dodds, he, you know, this is the classic character. It's just like always wants to make things difficult. And so now Barbara and Benson have to convince him and Josh Payas, who is Hank Abraham, um, who's in charge of some cop stuff. I mean, I don't even know all these commissioners. There are so many leaders of this. What? Do you know what he is? No, he's just like this guy, Hank Abraham. He's like higher up and and social services is under his purview. And he obviously does not want this getting out that social services has like mass erosion to it as a system you know yeah it's all about the bad press and it doesn't matter that children are dead and being abused it's like i don't want this on the news you know i'm Mm -hmm. trying to trying to have a political career and so eyebrows and josh payas hank abraham tell them you can't investigate it stop it I'm telling you, you need to stop it. And then this is like one of my favorite moments of the episode. Benson and Barbara are outside and she's like, oh, this sucks. And he goes, I don't work for them. I work for the DA's office. So Barbara switched, you know, being a dick about the emotions. He's won our hearts once again. And he's like, I'm going to take over. I don't answer to nobody. So that's really exciting. Barbara does a press conference and he lets the world know exactly what is happening. Cut to Keith. And he's putting flowers on Keisha's memorial outside of her home. And Carisi has to arrest him. And Ice and Rollins and the team are like arresting the deputy commissioner and Whoopi Goldberg and taking all the laptops and files from the Child Protective Services. And they're charged for a bunch of stuff. And then Hank Abraham's at the back of the press conference, pissed as hell. And Barbara's like, what, bitch? And then bail is set at $50,000 per defendant, which is pretty steep for underworked. I mean, underpaid government workers. So. They're going to Rikers. 
Barbara, Hank, and Mariska and Rollins are outside, and he's like, I told you to stop. And Barbara is like, shut up. And so they have a nice little thing. But then Hank calls Barbara Poppy, which is this racist? It might be. I don't know. Is this a is this a slur? Seems like a weird thing for like, yeah, a white guy to say to a Latino guy. I don't know. To Raphael, you know? Don't yeah. <laughs> the only poppy that's appropriate is Britney Spears' song from the album Circus. Um, that's <laughs> the only time whites can say poppy, I think. Um, or, I mean, I guess in sex. Okay. So... <laughs> At the hospital, Manuela is handcuffed to a bed and is asking Rollins, like, can you please um, get the judge to release me to go to Keisha's funeral? So this is fucking dark. I mean, she's sober now. She's not been able to get drugs. And so I think everything is like hitting her. She's handcuffed to this bed. Her daughter's dead. This is just fucking uh, dark. And uh, Rollins wants to know, how did it get this bad? What fucking happened? And she explains she was sober. She was doing good. And then, of course, a man. Of course, her ex, who is Bruno's father, not Keisha's, got back out of jail and they started partying and doing drugs. And she's like, but we weren't junkies. We were just having fun. But the guy didn't like Keisha because that wasn't his daughter. So he treated Keisha not well. And instead of kicking the man to the curb who's mistreating your child, she told Keisha, you better behave or you're going to get whatever this guy wants to do to you. And um. Oh, God, this is bad. So Felipe got shot 4th of July weekend and that like broke her world apart. So that's when she relapsed again and just became a full fledged drug addict was after this guy got shot. Now, Keith is in jail as well. That's the child services guy. He's in an orange suit and the lawyer is annoying. This is one of those situations where the lawyer is protecting the child services and the people at large and not really looking out for the guy. Um, so the lawyers, we we know not to trust him. And Carisi straight up is like, yo, you're the lowest man on the totem pole. This is a union lawyer. So you need to watch out for yourself because they're going to blame you. Like Carisi's always looking out for everybody. He's an angel among us. So Dodds um, and Abraham are like, back down, back down. You don't have a political bone in your body. And it's like, yeah, that's a good thing for a sex crimes detective. OK, we don't need politics in, with the rape police. OK, yeah. Uh, so this is and meanwhile, good. like I think like some of the stakes here are supposed to be that Olivia is up for lieutenant. Like we, they mentioned at the very, very beginning of the episode that like uh, you looks like lieutenant might be right around the corner, you know, so like it's supposed to be like they think sort of threatening her to back down that she'll be the kind of person that goes, okay, I'll, I'll back down because I want this promotion. And that's just not Olivia Benson. No, she has put herself into multiple hostage situations <laughs> to save a person. <laughs> yeah, bitch, don't give a shit about a promotion. Plus, she has a nice apartment. She does have a nice apartment. <laughs> um, Carisi's little speech to Keith worked. Um, so Car Keith wants to talk to Carisi. And he explains that Whoopi Goldberg, the not Whoopi, but her character, who I don't remember because <laughs> her name's fucking Whoopi Goldberg. I'm talking about Whoopi. Um, I just don't need any sound bites coming out of this. But she told Keith, stop coddling the clients. This is casework, not social work. She wanted him to stop taking their calls and told him explicitly to like pay less attention to the children. And the um, she also told him that you don't have to visit the kids. Just write it down. And so he got himself a new lawyer, and that's why he's explaining everything. And Whoopi's character's name is Jeanette. 
Um, so Jeanette called him in Saturday to come into the office and stood over him as he filed false reports that he visited Keisha's home. They filed lies for half the staff all day long, and he's willing to testify because this is going to haunt him for the rest of his life. He, we know that he is a good spirit, and he did probably get into this job to be a good person. Um, court's happening, and this is a very like um, Richard Gere razzle-dazzle moment. The two men are going at it. <laughs> It's like they're about to break into song. He's, you know, Barbara's in full suspender mode at this point. And the doctor takes the stand. She is beautiful. I'm obsessed with her. And we need, yeah, I hope she's a guest one day. She's in a lot of episodes. I think 11, if just my memory, I don't remember. It's not written. I just want everyone to know if I'm right. That's my own heart and skill. <laughs> um, so... Keith is on the stand and he's spilling the beans about falsifying records. And he was put on probation for spending too much time with clients, um, but was taken off of probation when he started to falsify the reports. So this place is just very corrupt. And we get a lot of details about this. The defense attorney is doing a good job. Like, do you care about Keisha or do you care about staying out of jail? So he's doing his job. You know, we hate him, but He's doing good work. That's why he makes the big bucks. So Manuela is doing eight years in jail. And this moment is ice cold. So Manuela is with ice and she's gets to see Bruno because the ride was late and she missed Keisha's funeral. So they're making it up to her by letting her have some time with Bruno and ice is ice cold in this scene. I really like this scene. And she's flipping out about Bruno and Ice-T says he's been placed in a great family. And hopefully when he gets older, he'll forget all of this and you. I don't know if we've ever seen ice this cold, right? Like yeah. maybe to like full blown hoodlums, but this moment was you see the little heart in Ice-T and Finn because to be like, I hope this kid never fucking remembers you. That's harsh. That's really. Yeah. But she killed her daughter. It's like, yeah, be harsh to her. But this was just um, an incredible scene. No mercy. Whoopi takes the stand. <sighs> this is amazing. So she says, I had no idea. Keith should have came to me sooner. I, you know, I feel very sad for Keisha, but Barba is starts questioning and he's going deep and Whoopi is in the deep end on the stand because he brings in the paperwork. He has the receipts as the kids say these days. And he goes, <laughs> how did 160 or like 170 files get filed for eight different caseworkers and their families in one day and he starts saying like one of the, some of the reports are for people that moved away or that are dead and like just none of the paperwork is mixing up and he's getting her and her face is just uh, she's just such a good actress it's like because the whole episode I was wondering like this is such a small part like why is Whoopi here like what how, what did wh what's happening here she's got to do the view baby she's got to <laughs> do the view she can't do full shooting days she's just doing she's doing what she can yeah and it's like I the whole episode I'm like what's what what's happening what's happening and this is where you're like no one else could fucking do this but Whoopi Goldberg but one of the greatest actresses of our time like she takes the stand. It's this blank stare, but it says so much. So it's like in the distance, not caring, but beat down. But there's something happening in her brain. It's just like such a powerful performance. And 
Whoopi finally breaks and she goes, I didn't want any of this. And he says, what? You didn't want to advance your career by ignoring child death and pain or you didn't want to get caught. And she says, God himself could not do this job. And these like and she goes into this whole thing about how like these children are raised by wolves. It's the drudges of society. This is the worst thing ever. They come to you as criminals. And then what the fuck do you do with them? You know, they come to you as like, yeah, it's she's basically blaming everybody. And the scene gives you chills because it's like you get these motherfuckers and you let them out into the world and then they mistreat these children. And then I have to fucking deal with them. You're fucking creating this. And the judge says, do you need a break? Everyone's like, uh, what's this? Stop it. So she says, <laughs> like, after 25 years of pushing papers and quotas, you all know it and you want to scapegoat me so you can feel better about yourself. She's like, oh, what? You don't know that there's poor people. You you don't see fucking poor people and homeless people on the trains and turn your back. You turn your back on poor people all the fucking time um, because it's too much. It's too much to fucking take it all in. I'm getting chills thinking about it. It's like one of the most powerful moments on SVU. And it's just like kind of a lecture to us as people and viewers because we've all probably been in a situation where we see something terrible and hard to look at and you turn your fucking back um, to keep going out with your friends or to meet someone at dinner and you go on to the next train cart. And so I love the moments where you're not above what's happening in the show. Like you are this person too. And Whoopi's going to let you hear it. Um, and she goes, you want to put me in jail? fucking look in the mirror my friend look in the damn mirror and then she's just calm as hell and nodding her head and um she's sent to Bellevue uh she had a full nervous breakdown she pled to manslaughter so then Matt the deputy commissioner the one that looks like a child um <laughs> he's gonna do a year and then an outside board is gonna come help restructure stuff because Keith's already in prison he like testified you know, um, so I don't have any updates on him here. OK, so then Dodds is doing a little game with Benson at the end and she doesn't care. Like, shut up, Dodds. Just be real <laughs> with her. It's like you're so annoying. But um, the SVU detectives broke a giant situation, um, something that has been fucked up for decades in the city. But SVU will always get to the bottom of it. So hopefully some great changes will happen with child protective services and then dodds tells benson at the end like you're a lieutenant now but we're gonna need a sergeant and we have a great replacement and she goes great when can i interview him and he goes you don't have to it's my son like i want to do like a song from a sitcom like this is like too silly well it's also like it's also like the episode starts out with dodds and benson being like all chummy and you're like oh this like he's really changed because like he was really kind of evil in some of the earlier episodes and so you're like oh i guess he's like a good guy now and then at the end it's like no he's still just like a dick that's gonna make olivia do whatever he wants because he has power over her in their jobs and then the episode ends with rollins rubbing her pregnant belly and sighing heavily with the weight of the world. I think that that's like the show sort of like dramatically sort of tossing to like motherhood and like, what is it? What are the implications of like bringing a child into this world? And is everybody ready for it? And a lot of people aren't. And these are the people that are, you see their children in, in ACS and, you know, 
That's what I got from the belly rub, but maybe I'm reading too far into it. No, that's exactly it. That's of course <laughs> it. It's, um, you know, an illusion. No, not what is it called? <laughs> a metaphor, a metaphor. But um, yeah, so it ends on a pregnant belly rub. Yeah, it's a pretty like it's a tough episode because it's like the show is attempting to tackle a super enormous issue in in most major cities, not just New York with with, uh, you know, child services and stuff like that, that just the gen- like the problems in these systems and, you know, they have to do it in 43 minutes or whatever. So it's kind of it's ambitious. And um, Whoopi Goldberg should have won an Emmy for this. Did she not? I don't know. Oh, I didn't look. <laughs> <laughs> I feel we would have known if she did. Yeah. Um, but she did not win an Emmy for this. Just so you know. Yeah. I mean, even though she did not win an Emmy for this, she is an EGOT baby. Yes. Not a lot of those out there. That's true. I can only think of like her and John Legend and John Legend's an EGOT. Yeah. He just became an EGOT. recently. Oh, my God. I mean, he's perfect. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, get ready to get sad. Okay, we are back, back, back again. And um, the sad thing about this episode is that it could probably be based on a few cases, but it is widely thought to be based on the case of Nix Murray Brown, who was a seven-year-old girl and the longtime victim of child abuse who was ultimately murdered by her stepfather. So I'll just give, this is just up top, a trigger warning for this episode. There's going to be, I'm going to try to really be quick about the details because it is really, I don't know why, like, it's like, since I had a kid, these episodes are more difficult for me to talk about, but um, this, I'm just not going to get into a lot of super detail. If you'd like to, you, there's plenty of articles you can research if you'd like really, really um, specific details on this. But essentially she was killed in 2006. This episode aired nine years later in 2015, but has a lot of parallels, um, in terms of the failures of social services to help a child in need that ended in tragic results. And I looked really extensively into also how to pronounce her name. Most news outlets were pronouncing it Nick's Mary. I read some places that it was Nies Marie, but I just, I'm just going to stick with like the way that newscasters were saying it because I don't want to be, um, I don't want to like offensively try to like do a pronunciation that's incorrect. And also none of my research was conclusive. So Nix Marie was a seven-year-old girl living with her mother named Nix Alice Santiago and her stepfather Cesar Rodriguez in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood of Brooklyn in New York City. They lived in a three-bedroom apartment with Nix Marie and her five siblings. I it's really kind of hard to get an idea of this of the family tree here. I believe that Nix Alice had four children, including Nix Marie, when she met Cesar. So I think that the most number of children in the home that were his were two. I think the baby was definitely his. And then I read about a teenager. It was really hard to get the ages of the siblings and their, their names are not anywhere either. So um, that's just like some general info about the family. Everything's heartbreaking about this case, but what's really, really heartbreaking about it is that Nix Marie was treated worse than any of her siblings. Like for some reason, she was qu- quoted in in one article as the family scapegoat. Like, I don't know. They her parents constantly said that she was a troublemaker and that she would break her siblings toys on purpose. I don't really care. I don't really think any of that matters. But um, she was definitely given 
the opposite of preferential treatment. She was given like she was definitely um, sort of targeted by her stepfather. And on January 10th, 2006, Nick Salise, the mother, went upstairs to her neighbor and told her that her daughter, Nick's Marie, had drowned. And so when the neighbor, whose name was Olbis Rivera, arrived at the apartment, she was shocked and truly traumatized by what she saw. She saw um, seven-year-old Nick's Marie, who was, much like in the episode, severely underweight. She was 36 pounds. So for some context, my not even two-year-old daughter is like 30, 31 pounds. So, and she is large, but you should be 20 pounds heavier than 36 pounds at the age of seven. And so she was severely undernourished and, and skinny. And um, she had been beaten by her stepfather. He had beaten her with his fists and belts and her head had been slammed um, against the bathtub. And all of this was in retaliation for taking a cup of yogurt from the fridge and that she was apparently not allowed to have and for a printer that he allegedly said that she had broken or jammed. So after he beat her, he put her body into what the family called, quote unquote, the dirty room, which was this rodent infested room where she had previously been tied up and left with only a litter box to use as a toilet. So this is just like all really, really horrible. It's torture. It's like full blown torture. Yeah. And it's really gross that they he the the stepfather always insisted she was this troublemaker who stole food and broke her siblings toys and stuff. And it's like, I don't care what she does. Like, no child deserves this kind of treatment. So ultimately, the medical examiner determined that she was killed by a fatal blow to the head two days before she actually died. So she had a subdural hematoma. And that the Emmy said she died of child abuse syndrome. So this was like a long, a long time coming. So the mother apparently, what I learned later, after the, her daughter is beaten and left there, she bathed her. She tried to get her warm. She apparently did some things and then put her to bed. But the child did die and was apparently gasping for air. It was like a horrible, horrible, horrible end that this poor angel had to go through. And the mother, once she was dead, calmly goes upstairs tells her neighbor Rivera, my daughter drowned. I need to call 911. The neighbor calls 911 and Rivera testified that Nick Salise was completely calm. But the minute she got on the phone with the 911 call, the mom started wailing and moaning and going on and on. And then when they hung up, it completely stopped and she was calm again. So she testified that she believed the crying was fake and that the, the grieving and all this emotional, this all this emotion was fake. What's strange is why would you get the neighbor to watch you lie to the police? I think she had to borrow the neighbor's phone to call 911. Got it. So... Rivera's testimony ended up being crucial in proving that Nick's Marie's mother did nothing to help her. Like she was sitting there for a prolonged period of time needing assistance and her mother did nothing and honestly waited until she was dead to call 911. Obviously, they go to trial. At trial, Rodriguez, the stepfather, tries to pin the whole murder on the mother, says she did it, basically. Uh, even though he admits to beating her, he he so I sort of tried to make it seem like the mother dealt the, the death blow, even though there's like no evidence for that. And it was revealed at trial that he routinely had beaten her. He had routinely, he had molested her. He had locked her in this dirty room, like we discussed. Like, and, and this is such a fucked up detail, but at trial, they showed the jury photos of the fridge and it was stocked. This is what's different from the episode. These people had a fridge filled with milk, pancake mix, salami, tortillas, cream cheese, lettuce, and the yogurt that she was punished for allegedly stealing. It wasn't like they were rationing out or they didn't have enough food. Like they had plenty of food in their fridge and they were just punishing this girl for taking something 
to eat when she's severely underweight and probably starving. So it's really just it's it's like unbelievable. Um, they find her DNA, obviously, on his belt and jeans. I mean, his his lawyer must have been like, we're fucked because there really was no way to get this guy out of this. They tried to argue because he had a world's greatest dad mug that he was an OK dude. Are you kidding me? That's like I mean, I feel bad laughing, but that is pretty. Hysterical. No, I know. I, I'm trying to bring a little bit of levity to like maybe one of the worst cases I've read about. You know, it's like, like it's, a Simpsons storyline. Exactly. It's like, it's like the, it's in the office. Real. He has world's yes. best boss yes. mug and he's the worst boss. Like, it's just crazy. So um, the jury was shown also a horrific detail was they were shown a tape of Rodriguez and Santiago at Target the night before she uh, Nix Marie died with all of their other children besides Nix Marie, because they obviously couldn't bring her out because she had already been beaten so badly. And they're taking out buying the other five kids, sweets, toys, DeBrat's dolls, like all this. Wait, sorry. They're just called Brat's dolls. I just am a fan of DeBrat. <laughs> um, it's really crazy. Like all the kids are in the video. Everybody looks happy and fine. And there's just this one child that they just treat horribly. And that I that, just like, wonder what the other kids thought. And it's like, I would never blame the other children for not doing something about it. But like, I am curious what they were thinking. I think that in those kind of situations, those kids are like, as long as it's not me. I mean, I don't, I think that like, you literally get a, a, you have to build up like a protective barrier with this trauma that you have and say, well, if she's getting hit, I'm not getting hit. Like, it's just terrible. But I, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, and I don't think any of the kids, I think maybe the oldest was 15 or something or and I'm not even positive about that timeline because I, I read an article about the 15 year old having to get therapy because the father forced him to do some weird sex. Well, I was stuff, about but- to say, even if it wasn't as bad as Nick's Marie, I'm sure that he abused the children. Yes, I'm sure he ways. abused the other children, but it was actually really difficult to find any um, evidence of it or, or like it wasn't reported on. Everybody was really focusing on her. Like this case rocked New York. Like I lived in New York when this case came out. I remember her name. I remember reading about it. Like it was really, really horrible. I really like that you are boots on the ground of a lot of New York crimes. And I was reading the free paper every morning. So I was getting a lot of, you know, horrible, horrible brief reporting on a lot of bad crimes. Um, In the spring of 2008, Rodriguez was convicted. He was sentenced to 26 and a third years to 29 years in prison. So he was given 25 years for first degree manslaughter and one and a third to four years for false imprisonment. And he briefly addressed the court and said, I'm just sorry for causing anybody any emotional pain or distorted memories about the child. I'm just sorry I loved Nix Marie. And then a woman in the crowd yelled murderer, and I'd like to give her a high five. Um, Because I don't really care for this man's words. Uh, yeah, if you know this woman, uh, please send us a <laughs> DM or an email. We would love a little lunch date. We will post-COVID. send her free merch. I would love to send her free merch for yelling out murderer. Um, so this is a a kind of a crazy twist in this case too, is like, so Santiago and Rodriguez had separate trials. So the Santiago is the mother. She, um, is described in one article I read as slow witted. Like she really had sort of a tough life. She had four kids by the time she was 22 and was living in a shelter when she met Rodriguez and they got married. So then he lost his job, became increasingly violent. She, you know, I think her options, this is what her defense tried to Posit was that her options were limited. It was like, take my six children back to a shelter or stay with this violent man. So she stayed with the man. Um, At one point, she miscarried 
And there there were conflicting articles I read that said she blamed Nix Marie for her miscarriage somehow. I don't understand how that I mean. And then other articles I read that said that Rodriguez had actually beat her and that's what caused the miscarriage. So it was really hard to find, you know, fully verified information on that. But she did have this miscarriage that um, ended up really traumatizing her. She took the fetus home in a jar and kept it in her bedroom. So that was something that like the social worker would see when she came by. And it was like people could see that this woman, something was off and just nothing was done. You know, her lawyers tried to push for her to get criminally negligent homicide, which would carry a max of four years in prison. And then they obviously continued to blame Rodriguez for the murder itself. Um, She claimed to not know what he was doing. But like there was other evidence that she would often tell her him to discipline Nix Marie, that it was her being like, she stole the yogurt. Can you go smack her around? Like, and so the, the I don't think the mother is fully innocent here at all. And her lawyer did try to, to, you know, present that she ministered to her daughter, put her in a warm bath after this beating, gave her water, like dressed her, like put her near to bed near the radiator so she could warm up. I don't really I don't really know. And the uh, the lawyer argued that with her poor education, she could not have known that Nix Marie was dying from the subdural hematoma, even though it's been said that she was like gasping for air and calling for her mom. So it's like really awful. Um, in 2008, the same year, later the same year, she was found guilty of manslaughter, which is the same verdict that Rodriguez received. So she was acquitted of second degree murder, but because she was previously convicted of four lesser crimes, assault for binding the daughter with a bungee cord, giving her a black eye, unlawful imprisonment, and endangering her welfare, Santiago was sentenced to 43 years in prison. So while her husband got max 29 for actually committing the murder, she got 43 years in prison. Um, She had no reaction when the verdict was read, and the judge said that there would be an order of protection to keep her from seeing her other children. I read a really interesting article in the New York Times, too, about the sort of pressure that society puts on mothers and that her punishment was so much worse because she is seen as a mother who failed rather than a man who beat a child to death. You know, like, I think that the disparity in their sentences is really wild. And unfortunately, I do think it is a cycle of violence that repeats itself. I'm sure she didn't come from a you know, it's from what I've read about her, she did not come from a super stable background. And so it just continued and continued. And she thought this is probably how life goes. I don't think I don't know. But her reaction after her daughter died also is is suspect. But there's speculation that she had, you know, um, cognitive issues, cognitive issues, exactly developmental issues, etc. So the real connection to this case is uh, and the episode is that it's shown a huge spotlight on the New York City Administration for Children's Services, ACS, um, and their failure to handle her case correctly. There had been two previous reports against the family, one in 2004, two years before her death, that was unsubstantiated. And the second was in December of 2005 when she showed up at school with a black eye. ACS has said that they tried to access the home several times and Rodriguez always blocked their entry and that there was a time where she had to get stitches and he brought her to the hospital. And when social services met her at the hospital, he swore at her and like ended the conversation. And so he obviously knew he was committing crimes and was trying to keep the um, I wish that that they had been able to pile more charges against him, like endangering the other children or, you know. Yeah, it's like I obviously am always pissed about sexism everywhere. But in this case, I 
I'm not even, I'm like, yeah, put, put her in jail. I don't give a fuck. Like it is weird that I want her in jail, but you don't think it's like a little crazy that she's serving 14 more years than her husband. No, that's what I was going to say. Like, I don't want her serving less time. I want him serving more time. Yes. Yeah. If he's in jail 43 years, he doesn't get out until he's in his seventies. And I think that's great. You know, because he also like sexually abused her. Like, there yes. are more charges. I think that I, like, yeah, the, I don't know if those charges were like not provable or what, but it, it's really horrible. Um, But much like in the episode, there was a report that they had visited the home. Everyone looked good. There was plenty of food, toys. And meanwhile, Nix Marie was 20 pounds underweight, had missed 46 days of school and had showed up to school with welts and cuts and bruises. So I don't really know where the disconnect is of like, I don't really care that there's a bunch of. Tonka trucks around like look at the child like she does not look healthy so the media came after ACS very hard and six children's services employees were disciplined over this um, the excuse was much like Whoopi Goldberg's monologue that the investigators are swamped with cases and the Bloomberg administration said that ACS was responding by hiring 525 more workers at the time um, and he also created a, pa- a city panel much like they said that they were doing at the end of this uh, SVU episode that advocated multiple changes. Some included better communication with school officials about absenteeism, a 24-hour abuse hotline, and then instant response teams and new training for police personnel regarding um, sensitivity to abused children. And then some of the key changes were police were, they were going to get a full-time supervisor, a lieutenant, which is Benson's rank at the end of this episode to supervise um, the sort of child welfare headquarters and be a liaison between two agencies. And um, caseworkers would be required to seek entry orders when denied access to the home. So you can't just like, I understand that a social worker cannot like fight a man to get into the home, but there has to be a way that you back it up and get into the home. Like if, if someone's refusing you access. Yeah, like if someone's refusing you access, that's more evidence to fucking go into that home. Right, exactly. And school officials will have more license to alert authorities when a student has too many unexplained absences. So by March of 2008, which this case like was from 2006 to 2008, this case was constantly in the media. And uh, ACS launched a $1 million recruitment drive for new welfare caseworkers. They had a lot of applications, but retention was really difficult because it's a very, very difficult job. In 2007, they reported that 17% of the caseworkers had quit. And the pay for the position at that time was $39,000 a year, which in New York City, that's a very, very low amount of money to try to make a living on and, and live in um, within the five boroughs and take care of this population. If anything good came out of this horrific, horrific ordeal that this poor little girl had to go through, it was um, Nix Marie's Law, which was proposed in 2006 by a New York State senator. And the law was designed to deter or prevent child abuse related crimes by charging parents connected to the crime of the death of their children with first degree murder. So the maximum punishment in New York would be 25 years to life in prison. I don't know how state government works, but it said the state Senate passed Nix Murray's law in February of 2006. But then Governor Patterson, the governor of New York, signed the bill into law in 2009. um, And that requires a sentence of life without parole for parents or guardians who kill a child. So since the passage of the law, reports to the New York State's child abuse hotline have increased. So at least there's become, hopefully, you know, uh, and honestly, since it's happened, there have been several other high profile cases where children have died in ACS custody. And it is a broken system, but we need to fix it because 
we just can't have kids falling through the cracks like this. It's just too sad. And do we have any information on what happened to the other children or is that all super private? They were all moved to foster care. Yeah. And then that makes me wonder, like, what is their future going to be like and what they saw in the home? And is, you know, is that just going to be a fucking cycle with them in this broken mm -hmm. system again? Yeah. So anyway, very intense episode, very intense true crime. And, you know, I just hope that there have been some changes, at least to the ACS, where there at least where people are not trying to cover up their visits and get paperwork done and fill quotas because it's just this isn't the kind of. And I think a lot of people go into casework have big hearts and want to do this work mm -hmm. and then i'm sure very quickly it fucking breaks you seeing all these yeah. horrific things in and out and then you're not compensated in any way it's like I yeah and i mean the foster care system is also like extremely biased against families of color and it's uh that's another issue as well like it's something like four times more children get removed from their parents uh from families of color and and i just think that I work for this organization that I'll talk more about later in the episode, but I was trained in sort of like trying to recognize biases when you're in homes of like what what is considered a safe home, you know, like a rug on the floor is nice, but it's not a necessity. You know what I mean? Like, for example, another bias we were trained on was uh, you can walk into a home and be speaking to a small child and they're not looking you in the eye and you could think, oh. They're being abused. They are keeping a secret. They're nervous around adults. What's going on? In Native American cultures, it's disrespectful to look an adult in the eye. So, you know, you have to go in knowing that there's all these different cultures to consider. And there's all these biases that both um, state employees and volunteers and all different people have when they're going in to, like, observe how a family lives in their own home. Just that's an example. Like, but, you know, there's certain... There's just ways in which I think social workers can sometimes um, judge with their own biases. But anyway, we have a hard-hitting interview coming up, and I'm excited to talk to our next guest. All right, now it is time for our guest. I'm so excited to talk to this person. She is the best. She has been on original Law & Order. She's been on SVU a couple times. She does mention that her character is Hooker because that is truly the name of the of the character Hooker. You can check the IMDb, so I don't think she's being um, derogatory. And she's been in some classic SVU episodes. She's the lead singer of a metal band called Alakine's Gun. And she is hopefully... Just the first of many guests that we're going to get who have starred on Orange is the New Black, a show that Lisa and I are both obsessed with, where she played Maria Ruiz. Please, guys, give it up for Manuela herself, Jessica Pimentel. You're our first guest that we're talking to in, in Europe. This is a pretty impressive. Well, I, I there's no pressure to represent the entire <laughs> continent then. I have to be honest. And I know this is crazy and I know it's all acting, but because of your orange character, I was so intimidated and scared to talk to you. <laughs> I was like kind of panicked and right away you're just like so kind and great. And I know it's all make believe, but yeah, it's I was like very real. nervous. <laughs> well, you know, why would you be scared of Maria? I think she's the, she's. She's great. She's awesome. She's misunderstood a bit. Yes. She's been through some shit. And, uh, you know, she's in jail. What the fuck? Sorry for my <laughs> part of my French. You know, it's a rough life, man. I don't blame her for some of the things that yeah. she's done. 
Well, we definitely want to talk to you about Orange, but let's just like really quickly kick off with some SVU questions. So our first question is, tell us about working with Bruno. That little kid was so cute. The one that played your little son. (laughs) Oh my God. That little boy, as cute as he looked in the TV show. (laughs) No, this is good. He's a thousand times cuter in real life. (laughs) Sorry. No, no, no. I I thought you were going to say he was a pain in the ass. He was a nightmare. No, he was actually the sweetest. He was so shy and he was so tiny and skinny and like... And he was so, and he played so well. It's like, can I do a cut? Like, he was so sweet. Oh my God. It was like too much. I thought they, like, they've done it too. It's too cute. Like, you gotta find a less cute kid. This kid's breaking my heart. But that's the whole point. I mean, how could you (laughs) not, like, watch that little boy and not be totally heartbroken? And he was just like that. And he was wonderful to work with. He was so, like, well behaved. He wasn't a brat. Like, a lot of our, a lot of our movie kids can be brats sometimes. I have had like a hundred movie kids at this point in my life and they're not all easy to work with, you know, Uh, but this kid was a a dream. He was sweet and lovely. Okay. A plus for Bruno. I love it. Well, and then that scene with the, uh, you getting to visit Bruno ice tea is harsh with you. I've never seen him be this straightforward and mean to somebody before. It was Uh like a wild scene. I don't know if there's a question. How was it acting with him? (laughs) Ice is ice, man. I think that's really, I had done scenes with him before in a previous, you know, one of my other previous hooker roles. And, uh, (laughs) and he was great. He's really personable. He's great to work with, but it was that particular episode that we became friends. Coco was there too. She's amazing. Their daughter's amazing. I mean, this family, they're all great, but uh, ice is very professional. He's very easy to work with. He loves to play around, uh, play, with acting, you know, as we're doing a scene. And we had two, like, he chewed me out a couple of times in that episode, man. I got like, people were taking this thing personally, I think. I don't know, but. <laughs> it's one of the more heartbreaking episodes. It is really sad. But I mean, everyone gives such great speeches about just how the system is overrun and overcrowded and and like Whoopi Goldberg's uh, big monologue there. Mm-hmm. I, it made me think about my mom a lot because my mom worked in the mental health uh, field. She's a psychologist and she she would come home completely exhausted because these are people that are just kind of like thrown away and like things are never getting better. And it's very rough work, especially in such a big city. And I just thought that that episode is was just really well, well done, well made. For sure. I mean, you're from New York and I was living in New York at the time of the case that this was based on the Mm. Nix Murray Brown case. Do you remember that? Mm. Like, Uh yeah, I was going to say it was so pervasive. Like, I just feel like anybody that lived in New York at that time, like would remember it. Absolutely. That's one of those stories that you hear on the news and you just weep, you know, because it's just so tragic. And you know that there were hundreds of people that would have taken her in or wanted to help or or just people that can't imagine that this happens down the street, down the block in your neighborhood could be a kid that you see all the time. And then one day you don't see them anymore. I mean, it's really heartbreaking. I think they did a good job of, of telling that story. And, you know, even Manuela, my character had a, had that moment where it kind of clicks for her that says like, Oh my God, what have I done? You know? Right. Right. What did they do for hair and makeup? you you were like so sweaty and the hair was stiff i like what did they put on you when they first find you you're real like you're real sweat it's like a very slick layer it's just straight grease man it was gross (laughs) 
It was so gross. And I remember the costume and the makeup people. We hadn't had a meeting before. And I really, I feel like that first scene you see me was the first scene we did. And the, the costume lady was like, but she looks so healthy. Like, how are we going? She was like, oh no, we really screwed up here. Like we got, she looks nice. Like she looks good. And they're like, don't you worry. And that those hair and makeup people, they got, I mean, they had to wash my hair every day after shooting. And I think we had, we shot those scenes in three days, but it was just layers of goop and gook and teased <laughs> out. Then my teeth had these, uh, this, yellow coating to really make them look rotted out and like you hadn't brushed your teeth in weeks yeah because you have great teeth and you got to make it look like you've been uh, that you've been using for a while so that's not that's not an easy can't just have you show up with those pearly whites (laughs) acting like a like a drug user right so they they really gooked up those teeth it was totally crazy and it's so funny because my brother and and his wife my sister-in-law were watching me shoot that scene and he was like still he he got like upset he's like oh my god oh my like you don't want to <laughs> see someone you love like all messed up like that you know and they were they were watching this and they just couldn't believe that that change how much they really messed me up but it really was like grease and like like some kind of silicone spray. Oh, okay. And at one point, you know, they were setting up a camera shot and I was sitting outside. We were like in uptown New York and I'm sitting down on the sidewalk and someone actually gave me money. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Cameras like, because the cameras were pretty far away and the lighting, you know, we were doing a night shot. So there was like no real lighting up yet because they were waiting for the sun to set. And someone just like, felt sorry for people were looking at me like oh disgusting like <laughs> oh, to, p- pulling their kids away from me you know it was insane it was so wow good. Well, that just shows that hair and makeup did a really good job they did a great job they made you look the part so because you've been doing like so many um law and orders and stuff like when you ended up doing this role like they just call you in and say we have this part for you or do they make, do you audition every time or like how does oh, it work I, I auditioned for it i think it's still uh good to audition for sometimes because sometimes you think like an actor might be the perfect for that role, the perfect person for that role, but then they come in and something's not quite right. So they did call me into audition, but maybe the list is a little shorter, you know, sometimes. I remember when I was auditioning in New York for commercials, I would be in there with like, sometimes like boo from orange is the new black would be in with me or like someone else. I'd be like, well, why am I here? Why am I here? <laughs> you never <laughs> like, know. <laughs> they're they're going to pick these amazing actors. <laughs> well, so over 35 orange is the new black people have been on SVU. Have you seen any of your pals? Like, like, have you chatted about it? Of course. Listen, law and order is a rite of passage for every New York actor. You it's like not official until you get that <laughs> that ton ton money. You know? <laughs> ton ton. You're like, yes, I'm it. <laughs> you have to do one, you know? And if you can do more, that's awesome. It's kind of like just always kind of grounding work. It always brings you back to your humble beginnings, so to speak, you know. So I guess by the time you had done like this episode of SVU 2, you'd already been on the Law & Order set like a bunch of times. But like, how do you find the set there? Like everybody tells us it's like a well-oiled machine that everybody's like so pro. I mean, I'm sure it's like, did you have any like specific thoughts about like working on that set? No, everyone is pro and they crank these out. So they know what they're doing. They know how to do it. They get it done. You know, the only uh, thing that we had a little setback with was so now is the juicy part. Uh, <laughs> our lovely Miss Hargitay um, went to 
the MTV Music Awards on a Sunday night. And she oh was supposed God. to shoot Monday morning. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> was this during the Taylor Swift time? It was exactly that. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. So as you can see, she had a lot of fun. And I think she missed her plane. I'm not sure if she missed her plane or forgot about <laughs> her plane or didn't want to take the plane. Uh, but we had to move some things around that day. I love it. But I mean, you know, that's life. She does this so many of them, you know, like let her live. I know, exactly. It's like how they once in a while let her wear a cocktail dress on the show. We're like, let her live. She's been in 475 plus episodes of this show. (laughs) She's given her whole life to that show. Let her live. But I mean, they were they were so quick to just figure out how to make things work without her there that it wasn't even an issue. She she had a great time. That's amazing. So let me ask you about, let's ask, I can't, I mean, we lo- we're both like huge Orange is the New Black fans. Like we both watched all the way, the whole thing, every single episode obsessed. Um, I mean, how did you find it different being on? I mean, that must've been such a different kind of show. Every show is a different experience. Every, every show is their own family. Every show has their own way of working. Every show has different energy. Um, we, our, our crew was amazing, is amazing. They're still amazing. They're out there still working, doing what they do. Our crew was always amazing, always professional, always on point. Our actors, well, you know, our actors, everybody brings their A game every time. And if they don't, you're going to know about it. You know, it's not acceptable, <laughs> but everyone yeah. did bring their A game. Everyone put their literally blood, sweat, and tears into that show to make those characters believable and make them people that you want to have discussions about after people that you were, you're going to think about years later, um, bringing real life stories to life in the comfort of your own home. We worked with the women's prison association at, at, at some points, um, helping them donating to them or raising money for them and listening to their stories, how they, you know, ended up in prison and, and how they were getting out, you know, how, what the transitions were like. And just in general, I think everyone just put their heart and soul into that project. So, and these characters, we played them for so many years and they and they evolved so much over that time that it, they're always very very special they're gonna all be very special to us yeah i'm embarrassed to say how hard i like super super cried after i finished the last episode like That's i just what I was like about to say i cried a lot i was at, i was alone in my sister's apartment and i was like don't come home for a few minutes like i need to <laughs> i was like by myself dying oh no oh no <laughs> well pajamas reminded me i also i really am a fan of your fashion i love that dress you wore to the sag awards it was so good and there was like a blue dress that you wore to some a premiere and yeah oh thank Thank you so much. Yeah, we were wondering, like, how does that how does your red carpet style work? Do you do that on your own or do you get help or what's up? No, I, I have help. I have had wonderful stylists that have picked things for me. But a lot of the times I do pick things in advance or like I'll see something and I just say one. I need to wear this and I don't know what to yet. But someday, someday, like that <laughs> red dress I wore, the scandalous red dress. I just saw that on runway and I was like, I need to wear that. And then we got nominated and I'm like, and I'm going to wear it then. Uh, (laughs) But just in general, yeah. Or I'll find a designer that I'm feeling at the time and and then wonderful stylist or publicist or whatever will help get me those dresses. And then we've, you know, we'll try on a few, see what feels right, see what works. Uh, But mostly it's just like superhero attitude is like usually the 
yeah. what we're going for. Some kind of royal superhero, just don't mess with me vibe in general. <laughs> and you've been acting for so long. Like you went to the, you know, the fame high school and you went uh to oh, yeah. college for the dramatic arts what sparked you like do you remember that one show or movie or like what got you into acting I have always been a musician my entire life um and I really dedicated a lot of my youth to studying music playing the violin um and I did a lot of that outside of school and so then I got to an age around junior high where there were special also special junior highs in in New York where you could go for if you were an athlete or or if you were a um, mathematician if, or you were in science, whatever. And, and my school had a great artistic program, but the music wasn't quite challenging enough for me in that, in that music program. So I auditioned for drama in junior high and started doing that. And I always loved, you know, reading Shakespeare. I loved reading plays. I loved Joan of Arc. I love, you know, great old drama, dramatic things. But then I went to performing arts high school and I was a music major, but I started having problems with my hands because I was playing about eight hours a day on average, you know, um, wow. on an average day, some days a little more, some days a little less. And that was a, took a real big toll on my, on me on my hands physically, you know, um, I started developing arthritis, tendonitis, repetitive, you know, movement things and having music all day. I it was like a little too much, but the only way you could stay in that school is if you auditioned for something else, you couldn't just stay and not do anything. Right. So mm. I, I was able to audition for the drama program in my second year and got in, and then I was able to do both. I was able to still take music class and theory class, but then I remember seeing um, Mercedes Rule in the Rose Tattoo in Theater on the Round. And I was completely just blown away. And I'd always been going to theaters. I'd always had a great relationship with, you know, going to Broadway shows. My mom used to make sure we always went. New York kids are very spoiled. We're very lucky. A lot of us get to go to a lot of plays, get to go to the Met. We get to go see, you know, ABT, a ballet company. We get to do a lot of cool stuff. So I'm not, you know, I was no stranger to theater, but I just remember seeing her in that play and how captivating she was and how captivated the audience was. And I'd never seen theater in the round before. And this, this play is just driven by these two people. It was super intense. And I thought, you know, if maybe I can't do music now, then I can just start really focusing on this. And I, I think I'll be happy doing this. And I really loved it. You know, it's a great escape. It's imagination. It's, it's awesome. And uh, so I could, I continued, I took a year off and got my, myself together and, figured out where I wanted to go and ended up going to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and working on a degree in theater. And then just off out the bat, just yeah, been working since. So can, tell us a little bit about um, the metal music. Neither of us, my husband's super into it. When I told him I was interviewing you, he was like, send me her band. I'm going to listen to it. So oh, yeah, I maybe got you one new listener on Spotify, but, um, <laughs> but like, how did you get into that? I mean, I know you said you were a musician, like mm -hmm. in school, like how did it make its way to metal? Just like teen angst, man. It's like, uh, <laughs> one day, one day, my friend in junior high handed me this tape, uh, called King diamond. Who's, uh, you know, big heavy metal guy, Danish guy. 
And I was hooked from that point on, you know, and it wasn't just metal. I'd always kind of been attracted to that style. I, I remember I love rock and roll. Joan Jett was on TV and I was like, she has got it down. Like <laughs> she, that woman, she's got it down. That's how you live. You know, I remember seeing that video when I was very, very, very little. And I thought, man, she, she figured it all out, you know, and then just getting older, um, growing up in New York, your friends, you know, introduce you to all new stuff. And then we had a great hardcore scene, hardcore and punk scene so that we had CBGBs every Sunday matinee. We had the limelight would have Matt would have like hardcore shows or metal shows. And then we would hide in the bathroom and then it would turn into the dance party that we were too young to go to, but then we'd hide in the shampoo room back then. <laughs> so you see all these great bands and then you go to a rave and then, uh, and then what else? I mean, we had so many clubs, so many awesome New York bands and then, then the venues were getting bigger and people from out of town would come in. That's how I met my guy. He's from his band played in one of my favorite clubs along with my friends. And then you just start branching out, meeting people and uh, yeah, the heavy metal, not just heavy metal music in general, but hardcore punk metal goth stuff that that stuff spoke to me in a way that regular top 40 stuff didn't speak to me. I wasn't living that life. I wasn't, you know, like everyone's so cute. Everything's so good. <laughs> Boring. You know? Boring. I wanted, you know, dragons and magic or someone that was singing about my pain or singing about the rough streets of New York, or, you know, that's what, what attracted me. If you're going to live through music and have a reality that is not yours, it should be interesting at least. I lived with a hardcore band for a month in Boston named American Nightmare. One of the one of my favorites. I love oh, American really? Nightmare. They used to play in you lived with the whole band? I uh, the lead singer. Okay. <laughs> I didn't live with him in a romantic way. I lived with my friend in like another room in the apartment. Okay, not in, like, yeah. not in that way. <laughs> I remember the first time American Nightmare played CBGBs. It was quite a quite a spectacle. They caused quite a stir. Oh. People were like, okay. who are these guys? They're awesome. <laughs> They're not from around here. They're from Boston. Kara, <laughs> I had no clue about that. Yeah, it's just a little thing about me. She just <laughs> likes to throw that out every once in a while. You know, I just, it them. actually <laughs> just came to me because I, I don't know, maybe I separated them in my mind. But when you said hardcore, I was like, oh, hardcore. Yeah, I knew this band. I didn't was thinking of metal as like a separate thing, but they are kind of hardcore punk metal. It's all like from the same kind of family. We all used to go see everyone's shows. We'd, you'd go to a ska show and then a punk show yeah. and go, we'd go swing dancing on Wednesdays and then, <laughs> you know, go to the goth club and look at the floor and be all depressed. And then like, you know, like we, we were pretty, pretty open to everything musically. I think I was not everyone. I, I was pretty open to everything musically. And I just loved experiences. I love, it's nothing like growing up in New York city, you know, it's really, yeah. really something special, especially in the nineties, you know, we had just, everything was just, open and anything could happen all the time. It's right. always been, you know, I think back on those days and like, wow, some magical things happened. Oh, my husband just texted me. He's really loving your band. He's listening to, to Alakine's gun. Yeah. This just in, you have a new fan. <laughs> awesome. Give him the horns up right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh. For sure. Oh my gosh, love her. 
love Maria Ruiz, love Manuela. Don't love Manuela. Don't love the character. Love <laughs> Jessica. Love Jessica. She's so great. I love all her scoop um, and gossip. And yeah, she's just a badass. And I do love how much she loves her characters. And yeah, now my husband like actually was like, I love this band. He was texting me. I find so. it funny that Jared is a metalhead. Um, huge. Like hugely, like just sits like writing and it's like, -na 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 -na, like loves it. I really can't imagine. Yeah. She's it's hard to, it's hard. It's hard to imagine. <laughs> but then I also can't imagine any other music he would be into. So then he's into so much sense. random music. Jared's into so much random music. So my um, dad, sorry to bring this up. My dad again. <laughs> No, but it, he's a hoarder, so he keeps bringing up old DVDs, and I keep being like, I don't know, I'll see if Jared wants them, and he's like, no, and then he won't give them. Like, but I don't, I don't know if Jared Please wants a copy Lisa, of Closer. Please, do not bring any more DVDs into my home. Like, I'm literally. He already was like, we're moving to Blu-ray, so we already have so many Blu-ray, and now it's like they're becoming completely obsolete. Anyway, let's get to the postmortem of this episode. Yes. What have we learned? This is obviously a fucking gut-wrenching episode a horrific horrific true crime a few lessons to learn from it are well i think a big one is you know like we always say don't go to jail for a man um don't let a man hurt your children i don't right. know is that a good one like yeah fucking kids over boyfriends uh i think that is a lesson for sure and obviously there's a lot of reform to be done to the foster care system and there's a lot of kids that are slipping through the cracks. That's not not the best. No, it sucks. And it just like it it makes you feel so powerless and how big these problems are and that it's been this way for thousands of years and all of humanity that we just like let mm -hmm. our most vulnerable people fucking perish like this. It's and it's really like upsetting. and it's like in the in the episode, obviously, you're supposed to kind of be like, yeah, Whoopi Goldberg's a little bit of a villain. And so like you, but I think in reality, the a lot of foster care workers are or caseworkers and people that work in for the state are really trying, but it is an overloaded system with low compensation. And like, it's just, it's broken. So it's not, it's not necessarily, I don't think there's like villains out there being like, let's just do the paperwork and let kids get beat up. Like, I don't think that that's like a, a probably commonplace, but it's just a very overworked system. And now that you did, now that you've mentioned, now that you've said it, we're going to say it. Wait, what's the comedian <laughs> line? But we don't say that. But now we've said it. <laughs> um, Whoopi Goldberg, give her another Oscar. I mean, uh, the performance <laughs> yeah. of a SVU history, I think. Like, that uh, monologue on the stand to me is chilling as fuck. Whoopi Goldberg should be the first person to EGOT twice. Yeah. She just fully <laughs> just re does a lap around people and EGOTs a second time. You know who it's going to be? It's the that married couple that wrote the Frozen song. Those fuckers are just going to keep EGOTing <laughs> in circles and just like fucking each other with their Oscar dildos. <laughs> like they are they can't stop winning. Wow. I guess you know more about that frozen couple than I do. Um, but <laughs> oh, another thing is, is if Mariska Hargitay is going to go to the VMAs and get and party and she's going to miss her flight, everyone's just got to give her a pass. She's the hardest working woman in show business. And we're just going to give her a fucking pass. Okay. She'll get to set when she gets to set. Okay. And this is um, not fully a postmortem, but B.D. Wong was on Las Culturistas podcast, one that I listened to with Matt Rogers and Bowen Yang. And they asked him to describe Mariska in three words. And I think you guys might would like to hear this. Um, you can listen to the episode, but he described Mariska as dedicated, moral, 
and irreverent. So that's pretty funny. And then Matt goes, we love a moral queen. And I just keep saying that to myself over and over on my walks to nobody. I'm just like, we love a moral queen. Um, we stand no- <laughs> a moral irreverent queen for sure. So that's just something that I thought you guys would like to know. But yeah, um, also, if you see something, say something or not. I don't know. Or it could be safe. But yeah, no, definitely. I mean, like people in the building of this, like if you if you're someone is in your building that you feel like is. But that's tricky, too, because it's like there's biases and there's things you don't know about what's going on with people's families. Like you don't know child services to call child services because you hear somebody maybe yelling at their kid. Like, you know, it's like that's it's just not necessary just because it's like the way you wouldn't do it. It's um, it's a slippery slope. So I also just keep thinking about how their fridge was stocked. And it's like, that's something like the yogurt like that. It's like they had the means like, what the fuck? No, it was like, I think it was like this little girl was strong willed. And it's like they say it's like how we talked about in the Fritzl case. It was more satisfying. He had so many daughters to choose from. He chose the one whose spirit he wanted to break, you know, like this little girl was probably really strong willed. And that was just like that snapped something in this in this father and this mother that where they punished her all the time. And maybe we can all focus on not looking away when things are difficult and taking that extra moment to like reach out to someone that's on the street or like give someone money or go pro to, I don't know. Just don't look away if you have an opportunity. Yeah. That's great advice. Well, cause now I'm thinking about that. What's happening in echo park. And I know. that's also fucked up. That's like that kind of news. And just like the Derek Chauvin trial starting and then the fucking laws, the Jim Crow laws that are happening in Atlanta. It's just like, I know f- shitty things have been happening always, but I don't know if it's because of the internet or we're more aware and we're older now or what, but it just seems like so huge and so many shitty things. Do you are know that that, that representative in Georgia who got arrested for knocking is a friend of mine? No, I did not. Her brother is her brother is my good friend. She went to my summer camp. I knew her when she was a teenager. And Whoa. yeah, she I've been following her career in the in politics and. Anyway, yeah, if you haven't read about what happened to Park Cannon in Georgia, please look it up. She's awesome. I think, honestly, we're going to be hearing a lot more from her, and that's great. The one funny thing about that I saw on the Internet was someone wrote like, oh, if they want to play petty, black people are the most petty people. And if we can't have snacks 150 feet from the thing, we'll have a booth 151 feet away. Trust us. (laughs) We will be handing out snacks. So I don't know. But I just wish people didn't have to fight so hard. Like, yeah, that's the thing. Like, it's just is it's just all too much. I don't know. Is that a lesson? Is that what you like to hear? It's all (laughs) too fucking much. And, you know, I hope you find the joy in your days. But don't let um things pass you by if you can make a difference somehow all right let's get into what would sister peg do what would sister peg do is our weekly segment where we direct you towards organizations or articles or resources that can help shed some more light on the topic that we covered in today's episode um today i mentioned earlier that i am a volunteer for a um foster advocacy organization called casa it stands for court appointed special advocate these are Um, court-appointed special advocates and guardians for foster children. And um, I joined this organization after Trump was elected in 2016. And I uh, was trained to become a volunteer. And I've worked with um, a couple of kids. I'm currently working with one. You work with one at a time. And you basically are the child's advocate. 
So um, you speak to the court on behalf of that child. Now, the child has a lawyer. The child's parents probably have a lawyer. The child has social workers. They have teachers. They have school counselors. They have all these people around them. And your job is just to speak for the child. Like you create a relationship with the child where you can say what the child wants. Um, It's a great organization. I would encourage everybody to look into it. Um, The website is nationalcasagal.org. Um, so that's national C A S A G A L dot org. That's also going to be in our show notes. And, um, if you have the time, it's really like, once you do the training, it's a monthly, it's more of a monthly commitment. And then you write court reports and stuff like that. But I think it really does make a huge, um, difference. There's statistics that show that kids with CASAs have more success with getting adopted or graduating school. And so it's just like extra eyes on kids in the system. So, um, yeah, you can message me if anyone has any more questions about it. But I work for the um, the CASA in L.A. and I know that they have them all over the country. Kara, I'm very proud to be your friend. I'm glad you are <laughs> you are a CASA and that, you know, these kids are lucky enough to work with you. Now, next Thanks, week, Lisa. you're welcome. Um, don't interrupt <laughs> me again. OK, uh, <laughs> next week uh, we will be covering the episode Intent, season 19, episode it is a wild one and uh, you can always watch the episodes on Hulu or Peacock or any international service you use and you know check us out on social media we're pretty fucking active and talk soon bye bye That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmesseduppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to SVU Superfan and our incredible producer, Hannah Kyle Creighton. And to our sound engineer and personal hero, Annalise Nelson. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. To Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thanks to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun, dun. dun. <laughs>